Do you try to be quiet? <laughs> 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 um. Anyways, uh, okay, so. The views and opinions expressed on this platform are of me, myself, and I, not any agency I'm affiliated with. So please do not take what I say personally. Coming at you live from Hurricane Utah, I have with me today Cody Allen. Cody has a whole lot behind his name. Not only is he a certified medic in Utah and Texas, but he's also a hand heavy instructor, an EMS instructor, he has his instructor stuff in ACLS, PALS, and BLS, and he is also an EMS training officer in the state of Utah. So my dude has a little bit of education behind him. Cody, if you want to introduce yourself and tell the people who you are and what you stand for. All right. Well, hello to everybody. Um, my name is Cody Allen. I'm a paramedic. Uh, all my training was done, even though I'm certified in a couple different states. I mean, it's pretty common, but it's... Um, all my stuff was done in Texas, the great state of Texas. Everything's better in Texas, right? I have a very high passion for this job. Um, I actually was in law enforcement prior to this and went into EMT school to kind of add to my resume and fell in love with it. And when you're an EMT, every, the next best step is, you know, let's go get your paramedic and do even cooler stuff. So that's where I am today. And um yeah. Uh, Cody and I are actually partners together, and I'm not going to say it's the biggest honor of my life, but it's definitely in the top five coolest things I've ever done is being able to work with Cody. Appreciate you, my dude. A-team coming That's at you. Exactly, A-team. <laughs> so um, I wanted to title today's episode as Crushing on Cody because we're talking about crush syndrome and crush injuries. <laughs> Very clever. Very clever. I like it. I wish I could say I don't laugh so hard when I think about that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a topic that personally I feel like it's not discussed enough. And I do want to pose a question for the listeners is that with crush injuries and crush syndrome and all things related of rhabdomyolysis, um, is it really that it's not so much that it's rarely discussed because it's, you know, what we know to do or that it's not as glamorous as something like RSI? Because that is such a hard concept to implement. Like, we hear a lot of stories about people that get trapped and you have to extricate and they get their hand cut off and all this stuff. But, like, when it comes down to the pathophysiology of, of what is crush injuries, like, what do we do and how do we know what it is and how to identify it? So, Cody, if you want to kind of inform us real quick. I will do my best. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. There's a lot that, that, that goes into crush injury um, I think starting off with just the basics of what is a crush injury which is basically any part of your body underneath any amount of force for any you know x amount of time and the biggest concern there is that we're going to damage muscle tissue um, release a whole bunch of electrolytes and then we start causing more problems throughout the whole system of the body so basically with crush injury I think it's it can be a glamorous thing it's just as you know adrenaline pumping if somebody's buried in a ditch you know up to their chest you know you got to move fast and and clear those airways and biggest thing is airway if they're you know entrapped and over time they have a tendency to go downhill really quickly 
every agency out there is going to really, every doctor has a different take on it. And some will treat it aggressively. Um, some may yield to the, you know, expert opinion of the, um, uh, you know, some sort of renal group or anything like that. So it's, it's really just, I think, that's inconsistent with the treatment across the board. And it is pretty rare. I mean, I mean, but honestly, worrying about crush injury, we're worried about you reference rhabdomyolysis, right, which is basically just the, the destruction of muscle tissue and of skeletal muscle tissue. And that can happen from not just force, but someone, you know, being immobile, your, your geriatric population who suffers a fall and they can't move at all. And now they have pressure building up from their bones and joints if they're stuck in one position for hours on end that they essentially are giving themselves crush injuries. Uh, and so that's why we need to treat those patients if they're immobile for a, a high amount of time, the same as we would if somebody who, you know, has their arm pinned underneath the car. So that's a really, I don't think a lot of people think about that side of it and they kind of forget that because they're like, oh, it's just a fall and they've been there. But these concepts apply the same um, to that geriatric, geriatric population that, you know, will be immobile. But basically, so in EMS, biggest thing we need to worry about, right, is going to be what are we going to treat for, right? So talking about crush injury, so with the crush in, or the pressure or something crushed on your leg, on your arm or whatever, right? So what it does is it damages skeletal muscle tissue. When those cells die, right, then they're going to release myoglobin, they're going to release potassium, they're going to release a bunch of other ones. But those are the main ones we kind of want to worry about, right? Um, and one of the things that happens with rhabdomyolysis is you have what's called myoglobinuria. And that's one of the things when we're treating with fluids and or sodium bicarb, which I'll get into later, one of the things we're trying to prevent is um, some things that happen with myoglobinuria that can cause significant problems down the road, or the biggest thing is acute kidney injury or renal failure, um, which can be very life-threatening, as you know. The, a lot of these patients, if they're crushed for long amounts of time in disasters, require dialysis as treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, the other big thing with potassium, now we're talking about hyperkalemia, right? And we have high potassium and an irritated heart. Now we're looking at cardiac arrhythmias. You know, Number one thing we need is that ticker, and, and now we're worrying about that thing going haywire and and being angry, now you got angry heart syndrome, right? That's not a real thing, but... Oh, I was ready. I was like, wait, we didn't learn this one in ACLS. <laughs> but, um, so basically with the myoglobin, um, we have it in our body, right? And not to dive too deep, but basically it's going to attach itself. Uh, myoglobin is a hemiprotein, right? And it has a higher affinity for oxygen than hemoglobin. Your red blood cells have hemoglobin. They carry oxygen. Your skeletal muscle and muscle tissues have myoglobin in them, right? So it has a higher affinity. So that's how your oxygen passes from hemoglobin into the skeletal muscle cells because it's going to want to go to the myoglobin. And then you oxygenate the cells and you have anaerobic metabolism and everything's great. Um, with that, though, uh, we have uh, safe amounts in our... our a standard amount in our body, right? We have our homeostasis in our body. And our kidneys, or the glomer glomerulus, I can never say that word right the first <laughs> time, ever. Ever. For the past four or five years, I can never say it right. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what it is about that word, but it's terrible. Um, 
but it is filtered out by that and pushed out through the urine. Um, so talking about that, when the kidney can't filter out the high influx of myoglobin, what happens is the myoglobin will interact with what's called a, don't quote me, I'm pretty sure, pulling, pulling from memory, trying here, is the TAMS horsefall protein. And when it interacts with that in acidic urine, it causes cast formations or it kind of precipitates, right? So then it can, as it forms these cast formations inside the, you know, um, distal tubule of things of the renal system and the kidney, now you have blockage, now you have acute kidney failure, and you all know that you need your kidneys to pump out waste. And if you just have waste and toxins building up your body, that's not going to take long. Um, so that's where we get into the realm of how are we going to treat acute kidney injury, right, or prevent it. We're trying to be proactive here. Um, and that's where you come into the things you hear, whether it be um, a very aggressive fluid bolus before the release of entrapment. And you're with that, the idea is to basically maintain urine output to be able to keep everything clear and to try to prevent those blockages. Um, you can always run into the fact we're using NS, right? We have high, high chlorine in there, and you can always run into like a, a hyperchloremic acidosis as well, um, you know, through long-term, long-term treatment. This is like hospital stuff. It's down the road over time. Um, the other part, and, and this is the, the debate, I, I did a class on crush injury um, down here or in, in the agency I work at, and it, it really is a debate out there. Like, it is back and forth. There's, you know, like I said, renal groups that are, you know, nephrologists that will support this, and there's some that don't. There's ER docs that have their opinion. I mean, it's all over the place. So, but the idea is it's a theoretical treatment. We're trying to, how I discussed how the interaction of those two proteins, myoglobin and the TAMS horsefall protein, in acidic urine causes cast formation. So how do we prevent that cast formation? We give sodium bicarbonate. We alkalize the urine, right? We alkalize the blood, and then we're going to alkalize the urine output, and then we're going to try to reduce those cast formations. So that's why sodium bicarb is used in that realm is to basically prevent kidney failure, acute kidney injury. That's the only reason. It can help with an acidosis. The biggest thing that's going to benefit from sodium bicarb would be a, um, I believe it's like a non-anion non gap hypochloremic acidosis. That's, that's something that sodium bicarb can treat. Um, it does, it's not very effective at reducing pH balances and treating long-term like a lactic acidosis or things like that. And then... You know, unless it's severe, we're talking like, obviously, somebody in cardiac arrest, it gets super severe when they have extreme downtime, and it's just given as a theoretical basis, let's try to reduce that acidity a little bit. But a lot of stuff I read out there, though, and this is where it gets kind of tricky, is if you just give bicarb, you take an amp of bicarb and be like, all right, we're going to prevent this kidney injury, you know, as you pull the, before you pull the rock off somebody. Well, sodium bicarb is a hypertonic solution. So with a hypertonic solution, we're pushing high amounts, you know, one milli equivalent per kilogram as a bolus, and then you know, starting a drip or a maintenance drip after that, 
if it's all hypertonic solution, you know, all your fluid's following that solute, right? So you're going to be pulling water from cells and you can cause some damage there as well. This is all the argument of theoretical stuff. But these are potential adverse effects, right? Based off what the body does and, you know, all the laws out there that they have. Um, but the other part of it is um, isotonic sodium bicarb is given. And that's actually shown to help with the prevention of cast formation. And it also helps with more so with reducing serum levels of potassium. We talked about point-of-care testing and, you know, taking a blood test and running and what's your potassium at. The isotonic sodium bicarb has actual, you know, something that uh, supports the uh, hypothesis that it's dropping serum levels, and it's because of that. So that's kind of where that's at. Um, again, both, I've read both, where you have isotonic sodium bicarb, and then you have just giving them one liter of NS in pre-hospital. But the idea is that we're trying to prevent kidney injury, which can become life-threatening, and potassium, right, the high potassium. Um, so the problem with, like, disaster-related stuff is, um, I think, uh, could be my opinion and the reason of why some of these groups may not like it is because isotonic sodium bicarb may not be readily available in large amounts, right? Um, for these huge disasters. Um, I think in EMS, in a pretty hospital field, in us, I think it's perfectly reasonable mm -hmm. to administer it. Um, but again, that's always going to tie back to, you know, who's who's in charge. I mean, we're, we're just extenders, right? Because it's an extender, so. Right, <laughs> right, very true. <laughs> so it's not so much that it's just like it, crush injuries are subject to say like one person has their arms stuck in a car door because they had a wild accident, but it's also, and it's something that I have to constantly keep in the forefront of my mind because I forget, but it's like Paul fell in his bathroom hours ago and he's been sitting there ever since. And it's not that his arm is crushed underneath the weight of, you know, his entire body. But once your body sits like that for a couple of hours at a time, like you're talking about, it's that cell cellular integrity that's questioned. And it's like all of that just, it's a whole lot, and it's, dude, it's so intense, and that's what, like, preparing for this episode, I'm like, yeah, a little bit of myoglobin, a little bit of potassium, <laughs> lactic acid, and then you come out here with, like, horseshoe, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I know nothing. No, no, it's, I mean, that's, that's, that's my, um, my nerd out moment. Like, I, I, I really, I'll be honest, when I read the EMT book, EMT basic book. That was the first book I probably read in my life that I wasn't forced to outside of school. Oh my God. And I could actually pay attention to it without being like, I just want to fall asleep right now. Like, <laughs> right. It's, it's interesting to me. And do, do you need to know that far in detail as a paramedic in a pre-hospital field? Probably not. I mean, to be truthful, it, can it be very helpful understanding the whole process and what you're really trying to prevent? Sure. Absolutely. More knowledge is always better. I was about to say, it makes you a better provider to know that it's out there and know that you can learn this stuff instead of just like, oh, crush injury, do this, do that, call it a day. Check the box. <laughs> do your checklist. Um, do you have a couple of questions talking about uh, as far as like the nitty-gritty pathophysio of crush syndrome, crush injury? So in the situation, not like people who fell on the bathroom floor, we can't tourniquet people. <laughs> Um, but why don't like 
the guy who his car rolled on top of him and now his arm is stuck and he's been there for quite a minute. Why don't we just tourniquet that limb and transport, say like in a system where, <clears throat> feels familiar, um, we have to contact online medical control to <laughs> ask if we can administer sodium bicarb if they won't grant us permission, like, what, what do we do in that situation? Because, like, the treatment is fluids, fluids, and fluids, and your bicarb. But if we can't, can we just tourniquet the limb and call it a day? Or is it just preventing – is it just, like, waiting for the inevitable at the end where now they're going to get their arm cut off? That's, that's a good question. With tourniquet, if somebody has it crushed, I think – that is the idea that when, why don't we just tourniquet the limb to prevent these, you know, toxins from hitting the circulatory system, right? Um, or going further through the whole body and causing that injury. Um, and I guess the best way I can explain it, um, the reason why we wouldn't want to do something like that is let's look at the treatment of snake bites, right? Back in the day, you'd get bit by a snake, and they're like, oh, tourniquet the limb, right? And then their leg swells up, and then when they would release that tourniquet, all that venom would just, that was built up, all those toxins get so concentrated in that limb. And then the minute you release that and they hit circulation, it's just like a, someone put a fire hose behind those toxins as they circulate through the system, and they hit the heart, and it's just instant bad stuff. Kind of like if you take the one log off of the dam that the beaver built, now it's all just flooding straight through, and then the whole structure collapses. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't. It's, um, and I, I, I don't know if they've ever actually tried that. I mean, it would be interesting to see. They probably have way back. You know, if they tourniquet snake bites back in the day, they might, you know, they have their arm crushed. Let's just tourniquet and we'll cut it off. Did like, we just come up with a treatment plan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tourniquet it all. <laughs> Run into some difficulties, you know, if the body's crushed pelvic binder around the abdomen no don't do that <laughs> please don't do that <laughs> this is not medical advice <laughs> no not at all not at all <laughs> very bad medical advice um but yeah um with that and then also you got to think if we have it slow controlled right we're keeping the patient calm and treating them getting some of that fluid going through to keep their kidneys you know their urine output up or you know preventing some of that stuff it's kind of like a gradual buildup as opposed to just that rush in the beaver dam situation. Um, the other thing is if we tourniquet it, we're going to cut off any oxygenated blood going down to that limb that's already damaged. So now you're just going to speed up all the damage that have already happened from that crush injury, and now you're just going to speed that sucker up, and they may end up losing the arm. Who knows? You know, all the tissue dies from an acidosis, and, you know, they have to amputate it later. Who knows? You know, that's probably a little extreme, but you, I guess the idea behind it is. No, dude, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, cells die. They need that oxygen. You know, they go into anaerobic metabolism, and you're going to further worsen acidosis, right? And that's, you know, that as, you're going to make it 10 times worse in that one limb, and it's just bad stuff. <laughs> Speaking of acidosis and the <laughs> acid-base balance, um, because sodium bicarb is a more basic medication, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. How does that work? Because sodium bicarb ends up turning into carbon dioxide, which offsets the acid-base balance. And how does, how does like something that is a basic medication and turns the, the patient more alkalonic versus like 
keeping them from going more acidic, but then the CO2 is going to make them more acidic. So like, where's the balance in that? If we are giving our boatloads of fluids and our bicarb, how is it not harming the patient in the long run? Um, that's a good question. And we're going to tie back to the acid, um, acid base buffering system, right? And which is basically your respiratory system. Your respiratory system is what buffers that excess acidosis, right? So that's why if we're talking about vent patients, right? And we we're talking about changing settings and vents, we're changing their pH balance, right? If someone's on a vent, you always have a respiratory therapist who's drawing ABGs or BBGs or you know, a doctor orders those and wants to look at them, a pollenologist, and it's we're changing vet settings that your respiratory system off gases what? CO two. So you're buffering off. That is your buffer. So um long term, you know, that might be something that we that they, they may have thought about if, you know, someone has a you know high influx of that to, you know, they might need a increased respiratory rate or their body may compensate and just start breathing higher on its own, like someone in an acidosis and DKA. Okay. They're good. They're good questions. They are that because these are these are you know things that I've even thought about before, and it's it's with anything I do. Like, I I think about stuff, and I'm like, I wonder what this is. Like, what would happen if this happened? And I have no clue. So I'm just like being my. Maybe maybe it's probably not a good thing to say. It, it makes me appear like I have no life, but I just sit there and read all day long. But I do I do have a life. <laughs> But the <laughs> Cody, no one thinks you're a giant nerd, especially now that you grew your hair out. <laughs> so one thing I do want to ask about, you said the isotonic sodium bicarb. What is the difference between like, I'm going to open our drug bag and there's an ampule of sodium bicarb right then and there versus like what you're saying about this, this isotonic. Right. Your bicarb right out of the bag is hypertonic, right? Meaning we have more solutes when you compare it to the actual volume. With an isotonic bicarb, the way they make that, um, one of the mixtures I've read about is like uh, three ampules, so the 50 milli equivalents of sodium bicarb in a liter bag of D5W, um, and they'll run that for crush injury. And the reason why is because they're going to look at treating two things at once, right? So you've made the bicarb an isotonic solution that's more neutral, and with that, we have the bicarb, which helps with alkalizing the urine, you know, potentially lessening the acidosis in the patient. And then we talk about sugar. Why would they put it in D5W? Well, now we have to think about what's the treatment for hyperkalemia in the long term, right? In the hospital, they use sugar and insulin. Sugar helps the shift of potassium back into the cellular space outside of the vasculature. So if we mix bicarb inside D5W, that sugar is going to help with the potassium levels, which if they're going to be, you know, there's a high chance they're going to be hyperkalemic with a significant crush injury. Um, the other ways I've, I've read about that you can uh, mix it, there was one, it was, uh, and don't quote me on the numbers, but it's like a, a liter of sterile water. You take out, I think it's 160 mLs of the sterile water and you put in 160 um, mLs of bicarb and it creates an isotonic solution. Again, don't quote me on the numbers, that's trying to pull from memory, but basically they, they use bicarb and sterile water. Okay. But for the most part, most hospitals I've seen, or not hospitals, but most literature I've seen, 
when they're talking about treating in the hospitals is the bicarb and the D5W, which is another thing we talk about in EMS, right? If you're in, a, uh, in an agency that doesn't carry D5W in liter bags, well, now we're like, well, how are we going to make an isotonic sodium bicarb to put it in this patient? So now, now you're talking about a logistical front that has to be changed along with changing a protocol to say, let's get it. Yeah. And then you got to deal with, so you're saying the D5, we carry D10 in like the tea tiny little pouches. Yeah. <laughs> so how much D50 do you put in your 1,000 milliliter? Then you put in your sodium bicarb. No, that's a really good point. Um, Adding more calculations. It's done. It can, it's definitely can be done. Um, I feel like anything can be done for paramedics as a physician extender. But yes, um, I feel like anything, I don't feel, I feel like paramedics as a whole aren't given enough credit. Um, mainly here in, in, in Utah. And, it, and I, I don't like it. You know, I'm just being candid, but I don't like it because they're capable of so much more. And when you increase the capabilities of all these providers in the state, all that Increased responsibility and capability does nothing but equal um, better care for the patient. And that's why we all have a job. That's why, you know, we go into work and, and have a job. That's why a surgeon has a job. A nurse is when you bring that person in and they're on that gurney on the hospital bed. It's about them. It's not about anybody else. Because none of us would be here if it wasn't for them. Correct. So, um, I just I think anybody's capable of anything. It's just a matter of training them and holding some high standards and and getting everybody to really jump on board with that. Well, I don't have any more questions because that just answered all of them. <laughs> um, do you want to add anything else about crush injuries, rhabdomyolysis? Um, no, I I feel like there's there's more to that as far as like what, you know, other things that can happen. But as far as EMS is concerned, I feel like that's our main goal is we're preventing worse harm, right? Um, and I guess a good way if you, this is, I guess, could be a, a clinical reasoning point, but let's say you have a, a crush injury victim and you do give them, you know, a, a sodium bicarb, you know, bolus or drip or whatever, and, you know, let's say you give them that, you give them a, a one gram of calcium chloride to stabilize the myocardium in the presence, you know, if you think they're hyperkalemic, right, you see EKG changes and, you know, if they have a history to support it, you should treat your patient. That's a, the European Resuscitation Council says that. If you have a history that puts somebody at risk for high potassium and you have EKG changes, which aren't always going to happen, but if you do see them, it is reasonable to administer calcium chloride, mainly, is what you kind of want to shoot for. You could do calcium gluconate, too, in a peripheral vein, but um, to stabilize the heart in that realm is a temporizing measure. What we're doing is trying to stabilize patients in the long term. Um, you know, we can give albuterol and other things, but I think that's it's kind of tied to crush injury with hyper-K and treatments. Um, you can yeah. talk about high-dose albuterol or continuous and all that stuff, but it's important because... The only way to get rid of high potassium definitively in the body is through your urine, right? You have to flush it out. And if we have a kidney injury and decreased kidney function, that's not going to happen. So we're, we're placing that patient at a risk of, you know, high cardiac issues or high risk of cardiac issues.
So if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have a crush injury, your ticket out the gate is to pee. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's life-saving measure right there. Pee quickly and pee fast. <laughs> Do you need to go to the bathroom, sir? Please try. <laughs> Cody would be over there like making up all the sodium bicarb. And I'm just going to be sitting there like, please try to pee. <laughs> please, sir. They look at you like, I can't breathe. What are you talking about? <laughs> I would be amiss if I didn't go through the regular questions. But before we hit that, a lot of stuff to review and a lot of stuff to gleam on. And this is all stuff that like, it's not just where I'm like, everybody else listen to this. It's stuff that I need. So I greatly appreciate it. You taught the class forever ago on the crush injuries and I'm not saying I still don't have that saved on my laptop, but every now and then, like if I have a second, I'm like, ha crush it on Cody, go back to this. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just appreciate all of that. And I know you probably spent God knows how many hours researching I, a lot absolutely. for this. <laughs> it means the world to me. Um, it's, um, I think it's it's definitely a topic that fits in there with like, you know, OBGYN problems you'll encounter in the field. It's something that you, you know, pediatrics, you, you're not going to encounter a whole lot of it, but it's crucial to know this information in the rare event that you do, right? Because you can make the difference, you know, worse or bad, or good or bad, so. Right, and like, like I was talking about with the car thing, that it's such a freak thing and you may never see it in your career in EMS, but like you just said, when you do, you better hope you know what to do. I mean, that's what it comes down to with any call, but like, especially something like this where it is one of those life or death. You could save the patient or you could cause them to go into kidney failure and die or a cardiac dysrhythmia or God knows what else. Yeah. A hot mess. <laughs> okay. Um, so going through our regular questions, you kind of already touched on why you got into this job. Mm-hmm. So, Cody, besides your endless fountain of knowledge, what keeps you going in EMS? And, like, what helps prevent burnout for you? Because, again, you have a fountain of knowledge. But after a certain point, like last Friday when it's dead and then it blows up the next day when I'm at the end of my 36 and I'm like, Cody, please, why did you do this to us? Because we're, like, driving down the road, playing music, and we're like, yeah, it's quiet today. Oh, yeah, something bad can happen today. And nothing happens. So, like... What keeps you going, and what, what is the thing that you're like, this is why I show up every day? Um, you know, I'm, I'm no different than any other medic out there. We, we all have uh, a starting point, and, and none of us, you know, myself included, will ever stop learning. There's always something new to learn. There's stuff that gets updated. There's new things you're going to encounter that you've never seen. Um, and I think... And it's truly something you've never seen. And it's things that, um, you know, these things, some of these things can be insidious, you know. You don't really see them and they, they sneak up on you. And I guess it's the, uh, almost like a, a rush, a challenge to me to to be able to help somebody when they're in a bad stuff, right? Like I take, I to me, what keeps me going is I want to accept that challenge, right? Like I I really like the complex call there's you know multiple etiologies going on um that makes me try to think um i i don't wish bad on anybody i know this is the (laughs) the thing that all medics say but if 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 a patient or somebody is gonna have a day 
I I just want to be there. I guess is a get best way to put it because I I want to be challenged in. I want I like the ones, the calls where you know you have a patient who's deteriorating, um, and you have to try to prevent that. They're de- deteriorating fast, or in a, a non PC term, circling the drain. Um, I do have empathy and sympathy. I promise. I'm I'm not just straight cold hearted, but. That's that humor, EMS humor, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, those are the most difficult patients, and I think those are the, the most interesting and fun to me, um, for lack of a better term, on fun. But is because that's such a challenge, and there's so many different things you have to do, and you may have to do, and you don't know what it's going to be until you see it, right? And you have to try to think ahead and be proactive to prevent a lot of these things, Um and I think those calls are the ones that really test all providers. Um, if if I could go back in both my internship or those who are training, and if I could control the world and take a brand new paramedic and I could pick a call they're going to go on, I would send them to those types of calls because those are the ones that are going to really, they're going to learn the most from and it's going to make them better in the long run. Um, with with me also is the uh um i guess paying it for giving it back so i and i and a good example so no no ems podcast is complete without a story right uh, <laughs> recent story um we went to a drowning call um there's a 3 year old who was um they found her submerged pulled her out she wasn't breathing normal and they were starting cpr according to CAD notes. Um, and then they said that she was kind of breathing a little bit, but not very good. And then throwing up by the time we got there, um, and we get there and, you know, we're doing the pre-check. I'm going in my head, you know, three years old, they're, you know, they're going to be, um, 15 kilos, right? 15 kilograms. That's her weight. That's what we're going to base our dose off of if we need to use anything. Um, because you're not going to know that information. And it is truly is one of those things where parents are just hysterical and screaming. And they go, how much does your child weigh? Like, as they're not breathing, like, right. you're not going to get a very clear answer. Or you might be looked at a little strange. But um, they just don't know, you know. And being able to see a patient like that who's who's not breathing, who, you know, you have to suction the airway, manually ventilate, you know, because she has inadequate respirations. And, you know, an altered mental status for, you know, a child, basically. And to see them go from that to by the time you get to the hospital, they're breathing better on their own. They have a non-rebreather on and they're actually crying at this point. And to where the hospital is just going to do their stuff as far as x-rays and then monitor, um, to see the relief, you can feel the relief in parents in those situations. Yeah. It is, it is out of this world. Like, and to see them feel that relief is what keeps me going. Um, those calls they are few and far in between, you know, but I know that that's just the nature of the beast. It's what, what are you going to do? And those calls really keep me pushing forward because, um, you know, it's something in that particular incident, it was paying it forward for me. You know, my youngest daughter had to be um, resuscitated, some resuscitative measures when she was born. Um, and to have a team there to do that and then to have 
no complications. You know, my daughter's a beautiful, healthy five-year-old running around. And, and then there's days you're like, oh, why you have so much energy? But <laughs> truly down deep, it's like, there's times I look at her and it's like, she's just the miracle child. And that motivated me to go out, and, you know, get my neonatal resuscitation provider um, right out of paramedic program, even though it's not required because I want to pay that for it. I, I can never, I feel like I can never pay that back, what they did for me and my family. So to do it, you know, I pay, I, I want to pay it forward for everybody, not just in pediatrics, you know, in, in particular that patient, I felt like that's what I want to do, you know, a good outcome for her, but all patients, you know, every patient we go on has some form of family or friend. And when you do something and you have a good outcome or they get better, then you've made them happy. You've made their family happy or friends or whoever. And I feel like that's honestly the best thing any human being could ever do. And for, for each other, you know, and honestly, that's what keeps me going. <laughs> and it's hard. I have my burnout days where I'm just like, I don't want to be here. This <laughs> right. another, another 17, another. <laughs> Not the other false. Yes. Geriatric population coming for Cody <laughs> on a daily basis. It's my destiny. I, I told you this the other day. <laughs> the geriatric population. I've, I don't know what it is. I, I get a good call every now and then, and then the geriatric population is my destiny. They're going to be my new people. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to lead him, Cody. <laughs> I'll have an army. I'll have an army. <laughs> All these meemaws and meemaws who fell on their <laughs> Trailing behind. Have you ever been hit with a cane? It hurts. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I appreciate you um, having me and, you know, allowing me to talk about things and, and run my app. So I think I tried. I went up. I was thinking of the questions that you had asked me before. So I was kind of trying to cover some of those. If I missed any, let me know, though. There's literally only two that you missed, and it's. I'm really impressed. One with the, the with, wow, a stroke. With everything you've said, like it just it's blown me away. Um, but also in the way that you've combined most of the questions, like, <laughs> really impressive. No one has ever done that. Um. Kind of did touch on them, but last two questions, and then I'll release you to the wild of your geriatrics. Um. <laughs> A piece of advice you give to someone either going into EMS or someone already in EMS or someone of someone who's thinking of making the leap. I think the best advice I can give them is to I would say it's twofold. One is to if when you go into this job, be able to make a decision and and stick with it and be flexible. You know, you may have to change the way you are going. So being flexible is really key. Um, the second key thing is a lot of self-study. I know, I know that we, you know, the National Registry has some pretty good education standards set out, um, and you're going to learn that, and then you get your patch, and you're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a paramedic, or I'm an EMT basic, or I'm an advanced EMT now. And um, it is crucial for any level of provider to continually self-study look up things that you're just like hmm, i wonder you know about that i was in medic school and i'm like well i wonder perhaps you know why don't they give a beta blocker and a heart attack and i'm sitting there looking it up like do that like 
pick a question, and you're not going to learn it all in one day. Pick a question. I had a provider. One of our providers actually asked me, she's like, so how do you store the knowledge that you have or like when you read these things? Where do you read these things? And I tell her, like, I, something will pop in my head I have no clue about. Like, and, there's, and there's so much more out there that, I mean, there's not even one lifetime enough to cover it. And I say, I pick something and I spend however long looking up, you know, researching articles, looking up, um, you know, medical literature, you know, supporting facts, things that don't. And I do that until I'm satisfied with what my answer is or what my thought process on it is. And, and then I'm done for the day, you know, and I, I just let it go. And, you know, there's a lot of times I have to review stuff, but self-study is definitely key for those that are coming into this. Don't just accept the basic minimums as this is what we're doing. I'm done. I'm good. I can just throw up the sale and, you know, easy ride from here, you know, continually challenge yourself. And the last question, if you could change it all, would you still take this, the path that you took, would you still take that path and end up in EMS or would you do something different? Um, I think that I would definitely end up in EMS and I wouldn't want to change going to EMS. I, if I could change it, I would come into this field a whole lot quicker. Um, and, and when I was in the uh, Marine Corps on active duty for eight years, I silly old 18 year old me was like, I'm going to go in the infantry and be a machine gunner. Right. Like every 18 year old who just thinks that they're invisible. Um, but if I could go back, I would be like, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be, you know, a corpsman or, you know, for the Navy or, you know, cause, or, you know, a medic for the army or whatever, you know, um, I just like the medical field. I'm really happy that I ended up in it because I've had the most satisfaction, um, from the job and I have my moments, but honestly, deep down, it's, it's, it's not even a job to me. I, I go to work to have fun, like to do something I enjoy. I'm working and doing something I enjoy and not a lot of people can say that. So I've, I'm, I think I'm blessed to, to be in that position, <laughs> to have found that. I think that's a lot of whenever your passion and your job coincide. Because, like, this isn't just a job in some instances. Like, it's not just you clock in, you clock out. But kind of like you talked about, there's stuff you think about outside of calls. And there's things that you do, in fact, carry home with you. And so it's part of that, like you talked about, the self-study of even though I'm home and it's my day off, if there's something I need to go look up, it's either I do it now or I make a note to do it or I forget about it. Mm -hmm. And when it sucks that you forgot about it is the next time on that next call when you're like, <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. I should have looked up the dosage of that medication. <laughs> Not that that's happened before. <laughs> no, Oops. no, never. <laughs> but now I'm with you on that. Totally understand. Um, well, dude. A lot of good stuff. Lots of <laughs> definitely gonna go back and listen to this about a hundred times and have a fraction of your knowledge, Cody. But uh Sometimes I feel like Ben Stein. <laughs> I'm picturing Ben Stein in my head when I talk and I'm like, Okay, you need to just shut up now. Everybody's asleep. They fell asleep. They're done. No. Like <laughs> 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 Wow. <laughs> no. 
appreciate you. I appreciate <laughs> your wealth of knowledge and your, your thirst for knowledge. Yeah. So it's a breath of fresh air in some instances where it's like all these medics are burnt out and salty. And Cody's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> but if you don't have anything, do you have anything? I don't. I'm, um, you know. The world needs paramedics. The world needs EMTs and advanced EMTs. So I hope everybody joins the job. <laughs> Not only that, they need good ones. So if you decide you want to join, make sure you study up. Be competent. <laughs> so. Yes. All right. Well, that's all I got. Cody, that's all you got. Perfect. I think we'll close it out. All right. And don't forget to crush on Cody. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so with that. So, guys, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, future topic ideas, please email me at 22atthelipspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's 22atthelipspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Never stop learning. And be safe out there, friends. Hot mess syndrome. We'll Hot call mess it. express. <laughs> choo choo. <laughs> choo choo, mother trucker. <laughs>